Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. As uh, probably most of you know, last Sunday I was off, and we got to hear a fantastic sermon from Mark, but I wasn't fully off because um, I took it as an opportunity to volunteer in our children's ministry, and uh, during the first service, I got to lead uh, gospel story time. Uh, if you don't know, uh, during, during the sermon here, our kids ages four through kindergarten uh, leave uh, for their own little instruction time. We call it gospel story time. And if you haven't volunteered for that, it, it is really fun. But anyway, last week, um, I'm, I'm leading this story time and I've got all these kids seated in front of me. And I didn't want to presume that they all knew who I was, so I, I started off by introducing myself. I said, hey, everyone, I'm Robert. And uh, one kid immediately said, hey, just like Pastor Robert. <laughs> it gets better. Um, I said, well, yeah, uh, just like Pastor Robert. I said, and guess what? Do you know where Pastor Robert is? Another kid said, well, he's in the sanctuary preaching. Um, I said, no, uh, not preaching today. Can anyone guess where he is? And their answers were priceless. Uh, one kid guessed Disney World. Uh, one kid guessed Bethlehem. Uh, one even said heaven. And so I let this go on and on for a while. And then I said, all right, everyone, I've got a big surprise for you today. Pastor Robert is right here. And one kid immediately said, he's living in our hearts? So to be clear, little ones, ask Jesus into your heart, not me. Um, I, don't, I don't know what they're picking up on things, but anyway, it was such a hoot. Um, and as I started thinking about it, you know, you can't blame them. Well, what they see of me on a weekly basis is just this, you know, distant figure, black robe, elevated platform behind a big pulpit. And so when I'm standing there in normal clothes right in front of them, they completely miss me. If you... If you want to conceive of the central dilemma between Jesus and Israel of his day, the Jewish establishment, the tension of the New Testament, if you want to conceive of the central dilemma they were facing, that will help you understand. Um, Don't press the illustration too far. I'm not implying I'm Jesus and our kids are Pharisees. But this is the problem. When Israel conceived of God, their conceptions were of Yahweh, the exalted transcendent, holy, burning flame, dare not approach his presence. I am who I am, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when a humble Galilean shows up and is before them as that God in flesh, they miss him. They don't just miss him, they hate him. 
And they hate his following, which is what we see in our passage. In the longest recorded speech in Acts, Stephen is masterfully going to stand up to um, the Jewish establishment, showing them that the Jesus they have killed is, in fact, the Jesus they claim to worship. And what I'm going to do with this large passage is answer two simple questions that I think are, at the, that are um, the central questions of the speech. It's very simple. What does it mean to reject God? What does it mean to embrace God? That's what's going on here. Let me preface it by saying this um, for you time-conscious folks. Um, my first point is very long. My second point is very short. So if you're tracking along with my first point and saying, uh-oh, how long are we going to be here? Trust me, um, it, will, it will work itself out. My second qualification is uh, because what I'm going to essentially try to do in the first point is teach those 53 verses um, it is going to feel a lot more like teaching than preaching. Some of you like that. Uh, some of you will have to bear with me. But give me 10, 15 minutes to explain that entire sermon, which happens to be the entirety of the Old Testament, which I would say if you are, um, if you're new to the Christian faith or you're exploring the Christian faith or you just are someone who says, you know, I've never really been able to put together exactly what that whole Old Testament thing is. Uh, listen up for 10 minutes. Uh, because what Stephen does, and what I'm going to do in explaining Stephen, is he tells the entirety of the story. So if you pay attention here for 10 or 15 minutes, you'll get what that Old Testament is all about. Okay, Um, it all starts with understanding verse 1 here. The high priest said, are these things so? Now, it's important to understand that these things, what these things are, and when you go back to chapter 6 in my sermon a couple weeks ago, you will see that they accuse Stephen of teaching two controversial things in particular, that Jesus of Nazareth will change the customs of Moses and destroy this place. And both of, the, uh, both of those accusations are an affront to the most uh, beloved, the two most beloved traditions of Israel. The customs of Moses speak to the law of God, and this place speaks to the temple of God. The law was revered because it contained God's will. The temple was was revered because it contained God's presence. So Stephen's speech is his answer to that accusation, and what he does is brilliant. Inspired by the Holy Spirit... He tells the story of both the law and the temple in terms that his accusers would absolutely agree with. But then at the end, there is this twist where he turns the story against them, claiming that they actually have missed the entire point of the law and the temple. Let's watch that unfold. In verses 1 through 8, 2 through 8, I suppose, Stephen establishes the foundation of the entire story, which begins, of course, with Abraham, Father Abraham. Verse 2, Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So God's redemptive story begins with one man named Abraham, and then Stephen briefly takes them through Abraham's story, which culminates with Isaac and then Jacob. Verse 8, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The twelve patriarchs are the twelve sons of Jacob. 
Jacob was renamed by the Lord as Israel. Thus, from Jacob comes the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, from here, Stephen is going to transition the story to the next major chapter, which is Moses. And he does so through the story of Joseph. Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons, the son that the other 11 were were very jealous of. Look at verse 19. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. So what happened was that these 11 sons were uh, jealous of their brother Joseph and they devised a plan to get rid of them and they faked his death, told told their father he was dead and they actually sold him into Egyptian slavery. However, there's that line where Stephen says that God was with Joseph. And in verses 10 through 16, Stephen tells the story of God's faithfulness and goodness to Joseph which essentially is the rise of Joseph from slavery to Pharaoh's right-hand man, where it says Joseph served as the ruler of all Egypt. And during this time, when Joseph was a ruler, there was a famine, and Joseph's brothers came to Egypt because everyone was coming to Egypt for the food supply. And it's there where they realize that the brother they sold to Egyptian slavery is now the ruler of Egypt. And so this is how the 12 patriarchs of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel got to Egypt, okay? Now we know that eventually it doesn't end well for Israel in Egypt. Um, And and you see that, um, let's see where that transition. Yeah, verse 17, where it says, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. So it's in Egypt that Israel increased, generationally increased, into a large people. But there eventually arose a king who did not remember or recognize the story of Joseph. And what happened is that this new king looked around at this great multitude of people and essentially said, I've got a bunch of free labor here. And he enslaves them. Now we all probably know that it will be Moses who delivers Israel out of that Egyptian slavery via the story we call the Exodus. And in verses 20 through 29, it tells the story of the rise of Moses leading up to the point where God calls him to deliver his people. There's one verse um, in that part of the speech that is important to note for later. And it's this exchange where he tries to intervene in the dispute between two Israelites. And they respond in verse 27 by saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? So they're rejecting Moses. Hold that for a later point. Then in verse 30, we come to the call of Moses, which famously takes place through a burning bush. Now, when 40 days had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And after Stephen describes Moses' encounter with God, you're on holy ground, take off your sandals and so forth, we are given God's call to Moses in verse 34. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And then Stephen says this, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you ruler and judge? Again, important to know for later, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. And so the point Stephen's making is the very one they rejected is going to lead them out of Egypt. 
Now, in just one verse, Stephen tells the story of the Exodus because what, um, what happens after the Exodus, more than the Exodus itself, is his point. So look at verse 36. This is the Exodus. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And then in verse 37, Stephen does a little subtle foreshadowing to his climactic twist that is coming, where he quotes our Old Testament reading that we heard from Celeste. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So he leaves that kind of hanging out here, this famous promise that that God will raise up a prophet after Moses that they're going to have to listen to and obey. And it kind of leaves it out there like, I wonder who that might be, hint Jesus. And then in verse 38 through 43, we finally get to the first main point. Remember, he's talking about law and temple here. The law of Moses, 38 through 43. Stephen tells the story of Moses receiving the law from God at Mount Sinai, but it's important how he tells the story. Instead of focusing on the law itself, he focuses on the people rejecting both Moses and the law. Look at verses 39 through 41. Our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make, us, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And so the important part of the story to note is that while Moses is on the mountain receiving the law of God, the people rebel against Moses and reject the law of God, choosing instead to make an idol to worship. Okay, now Stephen is going to get to the second main accusation, which is the temple. That transition takes place in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses directing him to make it. That tent was the tent, um, the tabernacle that, that housed God's presence, which was this portable tabernacle that stayed with God's people during their transitional time in the wilderness and entrance into the promised land. But it was never meant to be a portable tent, but a permanent house, a temple. And so Stephen explains how they got to the temple. In verses 45 through 46, Stephen speaks about Joshua leading God's people into the land, And then he fast-forwards to King David, where God instructs David to build him a temple to house his presence, and it was David's son Solomon who would do that. Look at verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So Stephen has gotten them all the way to the temple, from Abraham to the temple. But he ends the story by intentionally reminding them that it was never about the temple. Verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands as the prophet says. And then Stephen quotes Isaiah, who essentially says that ultimately God's presence cannot fully dwell within a house built by man. And he leaves that hanging as well. Okay, good job. We're done with the speech. Let me do this. Let me briefly review all of what I just said, and then we'll get to the main point. So this is what Stephen said in that 53 verses. The story begins with Abraham called by God. This is the Old Testament, okay? If you want to know the story of the Old Testament. It begins with Abraham called by God. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. 
He's renamed Israel, so the 12 sons of Israel. One of those sons, Joseph, is sold into Egyptian slavery where he rises to become ruler of Egypt. His brothers join him in Egypt where Israel becomes a great people. Those people are enslaved by Egypt. Moses is called to lead them out of that slavery through the Exodus. He leads them out. He gives them God's law. But God's people reject Moses and the law. Joshua then takes over after Moses, leads the people into the promised land with the tent of God's presence. David eventually becomes king, and God tells David, build me a permanent house. David's son, Solomon, builds this temple. Um, But Isaiah says that the temple cannot contain the fullness of God's presence. That's the speech. Now, what you have to understand is that up until this point, Stephen's accusers would be nodding their head in agreement. They would be giving him a rowdy amen. Everything he has said thus far, they would say, that's good teaching. Maybe we were wrong about this Stephen guy. Maybe he does get it. And then out of nowhere, things get crazy. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Whoa. Where did that come from? They would have been very familiar with that language, but they would never in a million years apply it to themselves. Throughout the story that I just shared, Israel continued to rebel against God and the ones God sent to lead them. Therefore, they were often called a stiff-necked people, a stubborn people who were uncircumcised in heart and ears, meaning you might be uh, technically circumcised and a part of God's people, but your hearts are uncircumcised. You don't belong to him. Your ears are uncircumcised. You don't listen to him. Stephen's accusers knew that part of the story, but they didn't view themselves as that part. They viewed themselves as the faithful ones who had learned the lesson of Israel's history of rebellion. The ones who faithfully obeyed the law and lovingly cherished the temple. But that's not how Stephen views them. He says in verse 51, as your fathers did, so do you. He's saying, you are doing exactly what your fathers have always done. Now we see why Stephen focused so much on the rejection of Moses. Again, verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey Moses. They thrust him aside. Stephen is saying, don't you see? You think you're the faithful ones. And you're doing exactly what they did to Moses and all the prophets. You are rejecting God and rebelling against the one he sent. To which they would say, how so? We're doing exactly what Moses tells us to do. We're doing the temple thing. We're doing the law thing. We're not doing that. Stephen's grand conclusion in verse 52. And they, the forefathers, killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you now betrayed and murdered. Just like your forefathers persecuted the prophets who announced the coming of the Messiah, the righteous one, you now have betrayed and murdered that very righteous one. This Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have rejected and crucified, is actually at the center of the entire story. 
Every step of the way as God's people rejected God and his prophets, they were rejecting the message of Jesus. And now you, in the final act of Israel's rebellion, have rejected Jesus himself. You stiff-necked people, look at what you have done to the righteous one. What does it mean to reject God? They thought to reject God would be to reject their heritage, to reject the law of Moses, to reject the temple. Here's what Stephen's saying to them. This is what it means to reject God, rejecting Jesus, the fullness of God in flesh. In rejecting Jesus, you have rejected everything God has ever done. All his promises, all his prophets, all the law, all his purposes, all of it is bound up in Jesus of Nazareth. And you missed it. You missed him. Not only did you miss it, you rebelled against him and you killed your God. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Okay. Let's answer the second question. Again, much shorter. Okay, well then what does it mean to embrace God? Well, that answer is obvious now, isn't it? If to reject God is to reject Jesus, then to embrace God is to embrace Jesus. Look at the last verse. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You who received the law of Moses that was delivered to him by angels, you have not kept it. And they would say, yes, we have. We wake up every day and give ourselves to keeping the traditions of Moses. They thought they were keeping the law, but Stephen's claim is that they haven't. And they haven't because Jesus is the law. And so by implication, to follow Jesus is what it means to obey the law. Jesus did not come to, as they said, change the customs of Moses. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't undo the customs of Moses as they accused him of. He came to fully explain, fully embody the customs of Moses. Thus, to obey Jesus is to obey God. Likewise, he did not come to destroy the temple of God, but to fulfill it. Contrary to the glimpse of God's presence in the temple, he is the fullness of God's presence in the flesh. Thus, to have Jesus is to have God. Bottom line, it's all about Jesus. So what does it mean to embrace God? Embrace Jesus. Now, that's the answer. But can we all admit that we need help with that answer? The good news is that as followers of Jesus, by the way, if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, let me just make everything I've said really clear. All the Bible is saying is one thing, follow Jesus. That's our message. Now, the good news is that the followers of Jesus haven't missed it. We haven't rejected God. The bad news is that we have this same stiff-necked tendency as followers of Jesus. So it's not the answer we struggle with, but instead the application. We who know it's all about Jesus need help fully embracing Jesus. Well, here's why my second point can be so short. In an incredible act of providential convenience, we happen to be hosting an entire conference this week on that very topic. How convenient. The theme of the conference is with. God with us, us with God. According to our passage, that all comes down to Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus. We are going to be as fundamental and basic this week 
as ever before because we think we need it. And that is where our speaker, Dr. Doriani, is going to be taking us. We, we talked, he and I talked this week, and he's going to take us to Romans and Paul's teaching on union with Christ as the ultimate answer to God with us and us with God. And then in our seminars, we will break down into practical applications as it comes to, as it pertains to our relationships with Jesus. So, listen, I really want our whole community to be there. If, if you call TCPC home and you're in town this week, would you please afterwards sign up? Um, it's going to be so nourishing to our souls, and we all need this. But for now, let me, let me close uh, with just one observation that will bring us to the table. If it's all about Jesus, if to reject Jesus is to reject God, if to embrace Jesus is to embrace God, then what we are saying is that Jesus is the fullness of God. He is the fullness of revelation. He is the fullness of law. He is the fullness of, of, of God's presence, of his promises, of his prophets. He's everything. And that being said, may I just say this. Well, hallelujah, that that's our God. Look upon Jesus. Is that not everything you want our God to be? Back to my time last week with the children. They didn't recognize me, but there were others in the room who did very well because my wife and children were also in there. And this presents the opposite dilemma. They have a hard time seeing me like this. The dilemma which explains why so many children and wives of pastors struggle with church and even Christianity. Because unlike everyone else, they do know the real me. They know my flaws, my failures, my hypocrisies. So when they see me up here in a robe, and if I'm not consistent or, bless God for, repentant, so we don't have to be perfect, but if I'm not consistent in front of them or I'm not repenting in front of them, then when they see this, they will roll their eyes and say, that's nonsense, we know the real you. Well, thankfully, when we get to know the real God in Jesus, what we see is spectacular. Not an ounce of hypocrisy or failure. Perfect life, perfect words, perfect deeds, and in the end, perfect love. If you want to get to know God, look at Jesus. And if you want to get to know Jesus, look at his cross. That blessed tree that says you can't obey the law of Moses, but I'll fix that. That blessed tree that says you can't stand in the presence of God, but I'll fix that too. The law of Moses, the temple of God, find their fulfillment in Jesus who was rejected and crucified, but in the twist that no one saw coming, in his rejection and in his crucifixion, he rendered the law possible and the temple accessible to sinners like us. Praise God that Jesus is God. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for um, this time, and most of all, we thank you for this table that proclaims every week to us Um, that you have indeed died and the fullness of your presence is found in this act of this sacrifice. So we bless you for this table, we bless you for a cross, and we say collectively together, thank you, Jesus, that you are the fullest expression of our God. Now feed our souls with this meal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.